just like the Philippians. We learn God's ways. We learn God's standards by personal discipleship, by being taught the Word of God, and by personal example, the example of others. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom continues his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. He has part seven for us. Tom has been teaching through Philippians chapter four, verses one through nine. So far, you've learned that spiritual stability comes by living in harmony with other Christians, facing life's circumstances with joy, endeavoring to be known for a gentle and gracious spirit, talking to God about everything, and choosing to think about the right things. Well, today, Tom will begin to explore the final step in spiritual maturity, taken from a verse described by our teacher, Tom Pennington, as the crown jewel of spiritual stability. This incredibly profound verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, is the very foundation for a spiritually stable life. And Tom, why do you consider this verse as the crown jewel of spiritual stability? Well, Bill, I hate to admit it, but there was a time when I didn't really think that deeply about this verse. In fact, I thought it was one of those that you can just read past and there's nothing really profound in it. The truth is, I've come to understand, and as we'll discover today, there is nothing more important to our spiritual stability than this. Verses 8 and 9 work together. Verse 8, we're to think a certain way. Verse 9, we're to live and practice that a certain way. It's really about living a life of disciplined obedience to God. That's the secret that we'll learn today as we study God's Word together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. This last week I was reading an article about an interesting event called the Ironman Triathlon. Now I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up watching Ironman triathlons on the wide world of sports. They're ultra-endurance events which test what a man is made of. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. For those of you who aren't initiated in this event, let me tell you that it is composed of three parts, as you would expect. First, they swim two and a half miles. Next, they bike 112 miles. And then they end the day's work by running 26 miles in a marathon. About 11 or 12 straight hours of running, swimming, and biking. To seriously compete in this kind of event, the athletes go through a serious training regimen, one that honestly would kill most professional athletes. One man who's had some success at these Ironman triathlons, the article I was reading talked about his specific training regimen. He said that he typically rides his bike more than 250 miles every week. Every week he runs 50 to 70 miles, and he swims up to 8 miles every week. That is absolutely serious commitment. That is amazing self-discipline. You may also be thinking, it's also stupid, but... When you, think about, when you think about that, I mean, here's a guy, the article went on to say that he spends four hours a day in training. 
He gets up around 5 or so and goes to work around 8, so he spends about four hours training his body, preparing for these events. And my question is, for what? To say that he did it? To have a trophy sitting on his shelf somewhere? To say that he's physically fit? Of course, those of us who aren't physically fit, we console ourselves when we hear about somebody like this with thoughts like, yeah, but he must be doing something really bad to his body. What's remarkable about this kind of self-discipline, this kind of self-control, this kind of training and preparation is you and I are supposed to be exercising exactly the same kind of discipline in our own lives for the pursuit of something much more important for something that really matters. I'd like for us to turn as we begin this morning to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Here's something, Timothy, I do want you to do. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word discipline is a Greek word that will be familiar to you. It's the word gymnazo. It's the Greek word from which we get our word discipline yourself just as an athlete disciplines himself for a serious event. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He goes on to say in verse 8, and this will be a comfort to many of us, for bodily discipline is only for a little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, I want you to use the same kind of self-discipline that an athlete uses as you pursue not a prize at the end of a race, but godliness. Because godliness pays off both in this life and the life to come. Sadly, Christians tend to be utterly undisciplined about their spiritual exercises. And I tell you now, a lack of discipline is deadly to your spiritual life. Why is that? It's because God doesn't zap us into holiness. God instead gives us spiritual resources to use. And spiritual growth is only possible as we avail ourselves, as we use those spiritual resources. It will not occur without them. But what ensures that we will use those resources faithfully? Discipline. Discipline. It's absolutely crucial to the Christian life. Listen to Lloyd-Jones in an excellent book called Spiritual Depression. I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Read about Henry Martin, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesley brothers, and Whitfield. Read their journals. It does not matter what branch of the church they belong to, they have all disciplined their lives and have insisted upon the need for this. And obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential, end quote. Without discipline, you will not, you cannot be spiritually stable because discipline is what enables you to use the resources God has given you for your spiritual growth and development. Paul makes this point crystal clear in the passage we're looking at this morning, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. We've enjoyed, I've enjoyed studying these first nine verses of this fourth chapter because they provide us with a wonderful glimpse into 
how we can become spiritually strong, spiritually stable. Let me remind you of where we've been. Verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with a very straightforward command. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Be spiritually stable. We've been looking at how that can become a reality for each one of us because the commands that follow verse 1, from verses 2 down through verse 9, this paragraph of thought, Paul identifies for us six specific steps that lead to spiritual stability. We've examined the first five. Let me just remind you briefly of them. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that we must resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. In verse 4, determine to face life circumstances with joy. Make it your ambition to be known for a gentle or gracious spirit. In verses 6 and 7, talk to God about everything. And last week we saw in verse 8, choose to think about the right things. Today we come to verse 9. Now I hate to admit this to you, but when I first started studying this section and I read verse 9, it seemed at first glance to me to be a sort of throwaway verse. I hate to say that, but one of those verses that doesn't at first glance seem to really add anything and that your eyes and your mind just sort of skip over when you're reading the Scripture. But here's another example of the genius of the Spirit. I know this, but I discovered it firsthand in this passage, that there are no unnecessary verses, only verses that we haven't come to fully appreciate yet. And after hours of study, I'm now convinced that verse 9 is in reality the crown jewel of spiritual stability. What at first glance seems simple is in fact incredibly profound and the foundation for a spiritually stable life. You'll notice in verses 8 and 9 that Paul reduces our entire Christian lives to two basic categories. In verse 8 he says, you must think. He deals with the issue of thinking those things that please and honor God. In verse 9 he says, you must practice, you must do. We've examined the command to think about the right things, and so I want us this morning to look at this final command, and in some ways, this final step, I should say, and in some ways, the most important step to spiritual stability. As we look at verse 9, let me give you this as this final step. Live a disciplined life of obedience. Live a disciplined life of obedience. Look at verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul begins this verse by outlining the various methods by which we come to know God's ways or God's standards. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Each one of those expressions sort of adds a fresh nuance to how we come to understand God's truth, how we are exposed to God's truth. And each of us, as the Philippians, have received God's truth in these ways. The first two refer to Paul's teaching. The last two to his example. The first two are separate. What you have learned and what you have received, the last two are really a package, one and the same thing, what you have heard and seen in me. What exactly are these methods? by which we have come to understand God's ways and God's standards. We're supposed to live a life of obedience, but how do we know what we're supposed to do? Well, Paul says, here's how you know. It's the things 
you have learned. This is personal discipleship. We have learned God's truth through personal discipleship. The word learn simply means to learn through instruction. It's one of the verb forms for the Greek word disciple. We could translate it, you have learned through my discipleship. Christ uses this in Matthew 11. You remember when he says, when he's giving that amazing invitation and he says, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Same word. Be my disciple, he's saying. Let me disciple you. Let me be your teacher. Jews were then astonished saying, how has this man, speaking of Christ, how has Christ become learned having never been educated? He's never been discipled. You see, in the ancient world, one of the primary, the primary means of education was not a huge school on a corner somewhere. Rather, it was parents who wanted their children to be educated would identify someone in their community, someone in their town or in their region who was a knowledgeable person who had the skills and the capacity to teach, and they would then have their child become a disciple of that teacher, become a pupil, a student of that teacher. It was the primary means of education, becoming someone else's disciple. The noun form of this word translated learn is the word disciple. It means simply a student or a learner, a pupil. A student, teachers you and I had in elementary school and high school, because Luke 6, verse 40, let's turn there for a moment, defines what discipleship really is. I've been studying a good bit about this recently because I've been looking at my own ministry of discipleship and how that needs to, to change for the future. I'm looking at doing some things starting in January. But I want you to see in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, it's laid out for us this sort of unique relationship that Paul's describing in Philippians 4. When he says, you learned, he's saying, you learned through my personal instruction, through my discipleship. Here's what it means. Verse 40. A pupil, there's our word disciple, the, the noun form. A pupil is not above his teacher. To be a disciple means you put yourself under someone as your teacher. But notice it's personal. Verse 40 goes on to say, but every disciple after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. There's the goal of discipleship. Paul says, when I was with you, I discipled you, I taught you on a very personal level. You learned as a disciple, and the goal was for you to be like me. You learned through my discipling of you. This was Paul's pattern. Notice Acts chapter 20. Paul, when he knows he's no longer going to be able to see the church in Ephesus, that church that was so dear to him. In verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. There, And he said this in verse 18, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you. And notice what Paul's missionary outreach looked like. I taught you publicly, he says, and I taught you from house to house. Part of the strategy of the apostle was not only public teaching, but discipling those who had come to faith in that community through his missionary outreach. House to house, 
pouring himself into, his, into their lives. This was the pattern of Paul. And he says to the Philippians, you learned from me. And when he uses that word learned, he's saying, you learn from me as your discipler. This is something that's to be taking place in our church as well. Turn there, but if you read Titus chapter 2, you find that Paul lays out for Titus, there who's stationed on the island of Crete, very specific instructions for how the church is to function. And he says, I want you to teach the older men that they have a responsibility to teach the younger men. And I want you to show the older women that they have an obligation to shepherd, to disciple the younger women. This is to be happening in the church. Let me ask you on a practical level, are you imitating Paul? Are you discipling? Are you pouring your life into someone else? That's all it means. It has both a, an informal aspect, just like Christ chose his disciples so that they could be with him where he was. Life on life, living together, dealing with issues together. But it also has a more formal aspect as well, a, a curriculum, if you will, pouring your life into another person, teaching them what you know. It also goes the other way. Are you seeking someone older and more mature than you whose life and ministry can shape yours? You benefited from it. You learned. In other words, you were discipled by me. There's a second method Paul used under the work of the Spirit of God, and it's the most obvious. Back to Philippians chapter 4, he says, not only did you learn from me, you were discipled by me, but the things you received, this is a reference to the Word of God itself. The Word of God itself. The Greek word that's translated to receive is a technical term for receiving divine revelation. It's used a number of places in the New Testament. In the interest of time, we'll just turn to a couple. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, there are other words in the New Testament for receiving but this specific Greek word is a technical word for receiving divine revelation. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive, there's our word, the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Over in chapter 4, he says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received, same word, from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Paul says, listen, not only did I disciple you, but I instructed you, I taught you in the word of God so that the things you have received, Paul is referring to those things that he himself received by divine revelation. You remember there were some things Paul said, I didn't learn this from any man. God taught me this by His Spirit. But there were also other things that Paul received, the established elements of the Christian message that had been carefully passed on to him by others. There were already books of the New Testament that had been written. Paul says, when I came to you, I taught you the Word of God. Not only did I disciple you, but I taught you the Scripture. I gave you what I had received, both from God and from the other apostles who had written what God had required. You and I, too, have received the divine revelation. What are we to do with it? This is another message for another time, but let me just give you an outline. When you look at these passages that talk about receiving revelation, use this word, you'll find that we have very specific responsibilities. You and I, too, have received the word of God. Not only have we been discipled, in many cases, by others in 
some form or way, but we've also received God's Word. What do we do with it? Well, you look at those passages, you find several things we're to do with it. First of all, and you saw this just a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians, we're to receive it as the Word of God. We're to acknowledge it to be from God. Secondly, we're to believe it. We're to believe that it's true, that it is all that it claims to be. We're to do what we find there. Fourthly, we're to guard it. Paul tells Timothy, he refers to the Word of God, divine revelation, as the treasure. He says, guard the treasure. What does that mean? It means you and I have a responsibility to keep the Word of God from being distorted and perverted and twisted. We're to guard it. We're to keep it pure, and that leads to the fifth thing we're to do with it, and that is we're to pass it on to the next generation. We're to make sure that the next generation, starting in our own families with our own children and the rest of the folks who in our church who are young in the Lord or perhaps young in age, we're to pass on the treasure, what we have received, the divine revelation to them, to guard it and to pass it on, to receive it, believe it, obey it. These are our responsibilities. Paul says, I discipled you and I taught you the Word of God. You learned and you received. The third method that Paul used to build his truth into the lives of the Philippians and that God uses to build his truth into our lives is not only personal discipleship, not only hearing the Word of God taught and receiving it, but thirdly, personal example. Personal example. Notice he says, the things you have heard and seen in me. This refers to the the imprint that his life and character left on the Philippians. Both what they heard about his character and what they observed firsthand. Paul has no qualms about saying this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says this amazing thing, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. An interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word mimic. He says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. We learn the truth of God, not only by being discipled, not only by hearing it taught, but by seeing it lived out in the example of others. Children learn by imitating. I read an article this week in the National Geographic about speech. Come as any shock to you, but dogs bark Cats meow and bears growl. This National Geographic article said that the ability for these animals to make those signature sounds is hardwired into them from birth. It's part of the genetic code of those animals. But none of those animals can learn to bark or to meow or to growl in a new way. They are stuck with those sounds. They are not vocal learners. By contrast, we as humans are created a different way. We have the ability to make certain sounds. Those sounds, the moment we're born, we have the capacity to make those sounds that scientists call phonemes, an innate set of phonemes. They're the basic building blocks of phonetic sound. For example, the g in the word goal is one of those phonemes, a building block, and there are a number of them in our language. You hear little children make those sounds. Those are the phonemes that go together to make up words and syllables and sentences. You see, what we can do that many of the animals can't is we can modify those phonemes, those basic building blocks, to create a string of them together that have meaning, words and sentences. How does that happen? 
you've heard your child, and we've all delighted in hearing our little children who yet have not yet learned how to speak, make all of those individual sort of phonetic sounds. How do they translate that into the spoken language? The scientists in this article went on to say they do it by passive imitation. That is, they see and hear us do it over and over again, and they begin to put those phonemes, those building blocks of sound together, seeking to imitate the way we put them together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Tom will have part eight for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.